Running Lifestyle Culture, the podcast. We are back, um, season two, and I'm hitting you hard. Um, I'm really trying to get this podcast to be something that you look forward to. And this episode, I think, will give you that type of feeling. Um, When I first met this person, they definitely had a big impact on the way I think, what I think is important. They made me realize that you can always think about tomorrow or like I'll do it another time or you can be scared about doing things but actually um, you need to think about now and you need to be in the moment. I really believe that we have these moments in our lives and we can capitalize on them, we can really focus and and zone in on what we're doing. Um, This podcast, yes, it's about running lifestyle and culture um, and I guess what I'm trying to do is give you lots of facets of things that uh, are important to you and this podcast really I think lends towards yes running um, because I think you can use some of the tools that we're going to talk about in running and I think it's a lifestyle as well I think there's a piece where you know the time is now you're in a moment do what you can do rather than waiting Um, and I think it's also a culture of actually being um, people of action and doing and being okay with um, making mistakes, I guess. Um, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to somebody called Mr. David Smith. David, how are you? Manny, thank you. It's great to uh, great to finally sit down and have this conversation. I know we've uh, we've talked about it and tried to plan it for for some time now, so it's finally great to uh, to get on the the podcast with you and then hopefully we're going to explore some interesting uh, philosophies today amazing yeah and we met at the battle cancer event um 2022 um for context so yeah it's been a little bit of time um so you're david smith mbe um give us a bit of an intro because i find it quite interesting when people give intros because they can go anywhere they like so give us an intro of who you are mr david smith mbe I love that question. Uh, I think years ago, if I'd been asked that, I'd have just said, I'm David Smith and I'm an athlete. And then as I've, as I've sort of aged uh, through life and been through life's ups and downs, and I think I think we can all agree that no one gets out of this without some form of scarring and suffering, you know, life's journey. And it's, it's put me into a place of deep reflection. And, and I'm very mindful now of when I'm asked to sort of introduce myself, who am I? Because I think we have like multiple identities where we identify as. And, and I think originally where uh, people struggle in sport is they purely identify with the sport they do and they live in that ecosystem. And then they come to retire from sport. And you, you hear a lot of athletes talking about this. They, they lose this sense of identity and this sense of meaning and purpose. And in 2016, I was paralyzed from the neck down from a surgery. So up until that point, I had always identified with being an athlete and that linked very closely to what the Olympic motto was of citrus hatches, potius, so faster, higher, stronger. So that was the characteristics all around how I identified. And a lot of our identification is built up how we, our perception on how other people perceive us. And we build our self-esteem from that and our self-image and who we are as a person and human. And then we find our tribe and where we belong. So what I find in 2016, I, I lost my tribe because all of a sudden here I am lying paralyzed from the neck down in a hospital and I was known as a C2 incomplete Asia D. That, so when people came up to me in the spinal hospital, they'd be like, what are you? 
It wow. wasn't who are you or anything. It was what are you? Wow. And I'd be like, I'm, I'm a C2 incomplete Asia D. Yeah. I started to identify with that. And then they would identify with this. And then when I left the hospital to go back into the community, I was now a disabled person. So people weren't looking at me and seeing this six foot four, strong, multi uh, sort of guess, multi sports adventure type athlete. They were seeing a disabled person. So attitudes started to change towards me. But then my inner narrative, I started to see myself as this disabled person. And I thought, wait a minute, I don't want to be defined by my cancer, my spinal injury. I don't want to be identified by my sport either because I'm, I'm more than that. So a quick delve into social psychology and I started to realize, well, actually, yeah, I have all these different things. I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a husband, I'm a friend, I'm a, I'm a mate, I'm half Jamaican and I'm Scottish. I love that. It's like mixing pot of all these different things. And then there's a, a bunch of uh, values and virtues that run straight through all of those themes that kind of hold it all together. And I started to think, okay, what, so what does David Smith want to stand for? Who is he as a person? And, and I want to be a, a kind sort of loyal, trusting, humble person that shows up every day with a, with a, a, a bunch of virtues that actually make me more than an athlete, more than a cancer patient, more than a spinal cord or, or disability person that actually that I'm, that my fabric is held together with these virtues and values that go to form, I guess, my sort of perception on how I want to live every day. So that really delved me into some really deep thinking about who do I see in the mirror? I see a guy who's paralyzed from the neck down. That's what other people see. But actually, I don't want people to see a, a, an athlete who's representing Great Britain or anything like that. I actually want them to see past all of that, past my disability, past my color, my race, whatever it may be, and actually see me as a human. And and then we can have like such an, a great conversation. And I think it took paralysis for me to go that deep under the hood, but I think that served me very, very well. And it was paradoxically one of the best things to come out of being paralyzed from the neck down was to really be able to look inside and find self-esteem and a sense of purpose from a value-based approach rather than just this external, well, I'll be happy when I get X or I'll be happy when I win Y. It's not enough, right? It's, it's the dopamine addiction. So I identify now, this is a long answer to a very simple question, but I identify now is, uh, is yeah, you know, I'm, I'm David and I, I'm a Nike athlete. I do all these other things, but I, I would like to identify, it's just, you know, I'm a human on this journey, like everyone else who's listening, trying to make the best of life. And ultimately, for me, my proudest thing is if I can have a positive affect on someone. And if I'm known as that person, then that I'm, I have a level of contentment. What an intro. Um, <laughs> David Smith, you're an inspiration. That's how I would have put it. But um, you definitely had an impact on me. I left um, Battle Cancer, the event, feeling really, like, really, um, really motivated. And I think the week after that Battle Cancer event, I think I definitely took action. And I'm very much, um, I'm really passionate about um, the values you talk about. I talk about people um, make athletes. 
mm. not athletes make people because if you're a person and you're you're fully formed you're well you're well rounded you have those values i think you become a good athlete i think a happy athlete is a fast stronger fitter athlete would you agree absolutely absolutely i've always had a philosophy that if we develop humans first and then we develop athletes and and i got i actually got that from pete carl and michael gervais who run the seattle seahawks and one of their they were like well our our end product is football but our philosophy is developed to just to develop good human beings and you you see a lot in the press you know athletes who are struggling mentally and and you know they win multiple gold medals but they they come to the end of their time on the program and they're you know they're they're in a really bad place and i always feel for that because i think wow we we could have easily developed the athlete to the maybe even a better athlete if we'd actually invested in the human as well and just develop good people and then that has a such a big impact on society and i think that's also what struck me with a lot of the stuff that you do you know a lot of what you do is to actually try and make people just better humans of course you want to make them better runners and, and better athletes but actually a big part of what you do is is just making people feel good about themselves and they don't that, have to win the London Marathon to feel good about themselves. That's that's definitely a cornerstone of my my, my philosophy. And, um, you know, for those who uh, maybe experience some of the things that I like to talk about, I think that, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you may have been in contact with me or not. Being being able to be as happy as possible is, is almost the single most important thing, I think, personally. Because I think from that, you can grow and develop as a person um, and that will allow you to become a better athlete. But also it's the interwoven benefits that you're going to get by being better. You make better decisions. um, Sorry, being happy. You make happier decisions. You make decisions that are long lasting. I think you feel more valued as a person because you are happier because you're not looking for external um, happiness. If if you're already internally happy, I think that's super important. and I think just going off on a tangent, um, I want to talk about Adam Peaty. I don't know if you've seen recently that he's actually taken some time out of swimming. And he's a he's probably one of the best swimmers, breaststroke swimmers in the world. He's got some of the most, I think he's got the most gold medals in breaststroke and world records in breaststroke. What are your thoughts on his current situation or, you know, and, and have you ever experienced anything like that um, mm. in your in your sporting career? Yeah, like I, I don't know Adam firsthand, so it's, it's all I always find it hard to to get like to really delve in under the hood. Uh, I think it was a really great mature decision he made to take time away. I think he probably recognized because again, what we got to realize is that, that an athlete matures in athletic performance at a very young age, so they have a lot of success very early on. And if we delve into a little bit of neuroscience, neurobiology, the the prefrontal cortex, which is a more I guess, higher cognitive part of our brain. It doesn't really mature to 28. Some people say 25, but 25, 28. So if you've had an athlete who's come through a program from a very young age, they've experienced a lot of winning, a lot of success, they can attach, again, their identity very much to to their sport. This is who I am. I don't really know anything out of this ecosystem. I'm in this ecosystem, and this is all that really matters. And then their self-worth is identified and attached to success. And then what is success? It's measured in sport by medals. It's not by values and about having a flourishing, happy life. It's actually measured in medals and gold medals at, at that. So that puts a lot of pressure. Your athletic age is almost 
higher than your chronological age almost because you've been exposed to so many life situations at such a young age when you're full of emotional drivers, you know, surges of dopamine, all sorts of neurochemistry in the brain. And you're also under an extreme amount of pressure. There's expectations from the public, from UK sport, from government, from all these external factors to say, well, if you're not winning, what's wrong? And usually when you finish a race, you'll, you'll see this in journalists a lot. The first thing they ask you is what's next? It's almost one of the first questions, what's next? You don't get time to just sit in the moment and be like, wow, I just broke the world record and won an Olympic gold medal and you're asking me what's next already. A friend of mine uh, who cycled around the world, he said one of the first questions he was asked as soon as he finished the cycle was, what's next? He's like, I've just cycled around the world. Uh, can you give me a little time to, to absorb it? So I think, you know, for Adam and that, you know, thrusted into the, the limelight, we, if I think if you knew his personality type, a lot of athletes are thrusted into the limelight. They're, they're very introverted. They, they don't want to, so they have, it's very uncomfortable for them to maybe fulfill the role of the extrovert. Then there's an expectation on how the public see them. So then they're looking at the public and thinking, well, how am I being perceived? I'm maybe being perceived as this inspirational guy who's inspiring a generation, but I don't want that responsibility. I was just very good at my sport and very talented at it and worked hard and had a great success, but I don't, I don't know how to deal maybe with the inspiration. So there's all this psychological framework and toolkit that, you know, are we given that the athletes that right balance of stuff and how do we manage these expectations of this constant winning, 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 which we, which is great. But that's why I always say that if we develop the human first, then the athlete, we can start to manage. And at the same time is you're not just an athlete. Okay. He's an athlete. He's a swimmer. He's also a dad. And he, and he was a partner. And so he ha you, you have life, life happens, right? So you have life happening at the side. Again, we don't always see that. You only see what's on a social media account, but that's, you know, that's usually like seeing the tip of the iceberg. You don't see everything that's underneath and everything else that's going on. And I think he made a very mature decision. And I think that takes huge self-awareness to be able to say, I'm stepping back. So I, I completely, any athlete who makes a decision that's based on self-awareness around their own health, I think is, uh, I think that's a very brave thing, a very mature thing to do. And also being able to set that boundary of like, it's it's me that's going through this. And it, it's it's high pressure when you have those expectations. I think Max Whitlock was another guy who, who had stepped back from the sport. But I know I've been in sport now uh, at a high level for 20, 25 years. And I know a lot of athletes who, who really struggle with the mental aspect of, of the pressure. And then people say, well, you chose to be the athlete. And I think being an athlete 20, 25 years ago before social media and before the, the I think you know, there was only, there were such smaller outlets of media. So the journalism side wasn't, you weren't over the internet all the time where now there's so many facets and so many outlets that it can be pretty overwhelming. And I think, uh, yeah, I would have made the same decision if I was him. You know, health is your number one thing. Uh, once you retire and you're gone, there's a next crop coming through and you're forgot about very, very easily. And um, yeah, so I think always as an athlete and a coach, it's important that they always make the right decision for the athlete's welfare. And I think you've hit something on, like you hit a nail on the head. I think even, even recreational athletes, I think they feel their pressure to 
to perform and feel a pressure to post a, a time. And I want to say anybody out there, some of the things we might be talking about, you might think, oh, this doesn't, this is for a higher level elite athlete. But actually, I think some of the values um, we're talking about can be attributed to you. You are the person first, then you're, you know, you've got all these other facets to your life. And it's making sure that you nurture those facets. You just like a flower, like you need to feed different parts of, of your life. And I think, um, that's what really inspired me when I was, I've been meeting and speaking to David. It's like, he just has, for me, a quite, a you know, we have quite symbiotic, um, thought processes. Um, let's deep dive into you if that's okay. So tell mm. us about, um, I'm going to just ask you some difficult questions. So tell us about, um, what happened to you and, um, you know, how did that feel? What did you do? You told us a really interesting story at the Battle Cancer event, and I hope you can um, maybe just recall that story because when I was listening to it, I was captivated. Yeah, so I think I was having this discussion yesterday, actually. I think one of the great things that I that happened to me is my parents put me into team sport at a very young age. So I learned very early on that it was about we, not I. And I think there was a great lesson to take from that and I realized that it takes a village to grow a child. And I grew up in a village. I was very fortunate that I had lots of people around me, lots of support network around me. And if we look can at- I, Can I just say, I think it's the same with individual sports. We're seeing that more with like Kipchoge, who ha has a team. So- Yeah, he has a team, exactly. I think yeah. we need to also, if you are listening to this, you are maybe a runner, you think you're gonna be running on your own. We know that it's taking more now for people to get better at their sport. And please do think about that we. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's important. You're right, because even as an individual, you still can't do it on your own. You really, really can't. And this is one thing that's really hit me through all of this diagnosis and cancers, that what worked 12 years ago doesn't work now. I, I, like, I almost likened it to a metaphor of I felt like I'm a boxer and I've gone through 12 rounds. And what re at the first one round, two round, th third round, you can really come out fighting, fighting, fighting. And as you get towards the end, you start to gas out very much like a marathon. You know what? The strategy that maybe works for the first few miles, you have to change mid-race, change. You can't have the same strategy. Yep. And it, it's the same with life, right? And so it, I, I'd been an athlete my whole life and very fortunate. My parents had flung me into team sports, but they also put me in individual sports. But again, I had the philosophy running through that there's always this we. And that's great as well, because then you can celebrate in your teammate's success. And Katrui is the same. There's a lot of guys that he runs with. They'll be as happy seeing him win than he is winning. Yeah. Because they they're part of that journey. You take everyone with you. And, and that's great when one of your friends is really successful and breaks world records and wins Olympic golds because you're part of that. You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm his training partner. I've, I've been on training sessions with him. So there's this, there is this collective we, which I think is super, super important my life completely changed you know i was focused very much i wouldn't say i was probably pretty single-minded about trying to get to an olympic games representing great britain and I, I was on the british rowing team at the time preparing for the london games and i had some health issues i had some like neck pain wrist pain back pain and i was sent for a scan and that scan, ultimately, I thought it was going to show a bulging disc and I was going to have some treatment for a bulging disc and be straight back in it. And I had a scan. Within an hour, I was sat in front of a, uh, a surgeon and he held up a scan, uh, the scan on a 
shaded thing. He said, look, that shaded area is a, is a tumor. Uh, your whole life is about to change. And what I didn't realize at that point, that that first diagnosis would then go on to be diagnosed four times over 13 years. It resulted in six spinal surgeries through my neck. It resulted in me learning to walk four times on four separate different occasions. Every time they operated through the neck, I had like a temporary paralysis. I would go from a hundred kilo roar to 60 kilos within two weeks in a hospital bed because I couldn't really move. So every surgery I had, I had to start below ground zero. So I had to learn how just to sit up. I had to learn to speak again. I had to learn to move my lip. Every limb had to be retaught, relearned. So the first time that happened was in 2010. I had the surgery. They cut me through the front of the neck. They removed some vertebrae. They went in to remove the tumor. They, after seven days, I got sent home. I suffered a stroke and I was, I was probably hours away from death. And I managed to get rushed back into hospital, had my spine stabilized another emergency surgery to decompress the, the blood clot and, the, and stop the stroke going to the brainstem. If it had gone up another two or three millimeters, that, that would have been me, I would be dead. And then I had a lengthy rehabilitation process. This was two years before London. So I had rehabilitation of learning to walk, learning to move, learning to talk, rebuild the whole body from scratch to get to London, to be sat on the start line, to cross the finish line with a gold medal, to then sitting at home thinking, well, what, what just happened? There was extreme highs, extreme lows, highs, lows, but I wasn't doing the inner work. So we can work three things in life. We can work our craft, our body and our mind. And I had done a lot of work in on my craft, which was being an athlete, a lot of work on my body, building it from 60 kilos back up to rowing competitive weight and through the learning to walk, but I hadn't done the mental work. I hadn't done, I hadn't looked really under the hood. So I was hiding in sport. I had that goal. I had the purpose, the philosophy. Okay. It was all about getting to London to win. And then after London, I thought, well, I, I've had my cancer. I've, I've been through all this once before. This is great. I'm, I'm going to switch sports, close the chapter in that book. I don't want to have continually be reminded every day that I walk through the rowing center of all the pain, the suffering of going through the, the whole process of learning to walk again. And I, I switched to cycling. I got onto the British cycling program and I remember going for a race. And just before I went for a race, a letter came in from the hospital because I was getting five monthly scans and a letter came in from the hospital to say, you need to come down. We, we've got, you know, some stuff in the scan that we need to discuss just as I was going to a bike race. So I parked the letter, went to the bike race, came back, flew down to, to, to Oxford, went for the results of the scan to be told that the, the cancer's come back again. This was a, a major surgery through the back of my neck, go back in again. So I'd gone from this peak cycling condition racing to then being lying flat in a hospital again, uh, cut open, unable to sit up, unable to move. And this just became my pattern for 13 years. I would then rebuild myself back up. I would make it back onto the British team, compete in a race, come home, have a scan and be diagnosed again. And then on one of those surgeries, the surgeon, there was a catalog of mistakes made. And I woke up from a 10 hour surgery and I never moved again. And wow. that then was when everything was stripped from me. My identity, this life was taken from me. And I read Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And it, there was a lot in that book that I took. 
from my hospital bed, but I spent almost six months just lying in a hospital bed with the highlight of my day was a bed bath. And life doesn't stop, right? Life is continuing on. So I'm lying in this hospital bed. I, I didn't breathe fresh air. I didn't hear the birds, absolutely nothing. And the first time I got outside and I heard a bird and I breathed fresh air, I remember a tear running down my eye. And I was like, wow, life is really about being where your feet are. And so many of us live in the past or live in the future that we really struggle to be present. And especially now with, with cell phones and so much going on that we're always looking for the next thing, this dopamine addiction, always looking for the next thing. And here I was just sat in a wheelchair looking at a tree and I had more gratitude, more fulfillment than I did standing on a podium in London and that felt empty. But this all of a sudden felt like the most fulfilling thing that had ever happened. And I always, I signed a contract with myself to say, David, if, if you can get out of hospital and go back to life, you have to live by the philosophy of trying somehow to find contentment in what you do. Not, and it's not saying that not to set goals and strive for it, but they also have to come from an internal value base. And I get out of hospital a year later and I try to integrate back into society as this disabled person. And I, and I couldn't do it, Manny. I, I really struggled. And at the lowest point, I thought, that's it, I, I don't want to live anymore. Because my goal from other surgeries was to make it onto the British team again, make it back to this high level athlete. And all of a sudden now, the goal was to learn to walk again. I had done that and I had worked. I remember sitting in hospital and they asked me, what's your goals in a, in a planning meeting? And I said, well, I want to cycle across the Alps and I want to race for Great Britain. And the doctor said, look, maybe just try and brush your teeth. And I was like, wow, that is the reality. And then I remember I hadn't seen a mirror and I see myself in a mirror and I remember looking and just thinking, that's what I look like now. Wow. And I, to this day, still can't really look in a mirror. So that, yes. yeah, that, that, that hit me hard. And I think from there, my coping mechanism was always sport. It was always to move my body. As long as I'm moving my body and pushing forward, I'd learned to walk. And I was thinking, right, I, I need a goal. I need something to hold on, something that's going to get me out of bed in the morning, hold me accountable. And in psychology, they call it the self-determination theory. So you need a level of autonomy, a level of belonging, and this like feeling that you're uh, growing and you're competent or something. And I didn't have any of them three. So I didn't really have any of this. I, I was lost. And eventually I found my way back into cycling, made it back to the world championships in 2018. I was a minute off the podium. I came back and I, I'd, I'd found peace with the paralysis because they told me the cancer was completely gone. So I thought, okay, I can live the rest of my life with only half of my body if I don't have a tumor. But what they didn't tell me was the tumor was actually growing back. So I did this, uh, World Championships, I came home and they did a scan and the radiographer said, I hope you've got some nice plans over the next few weeks. And it was almost giving it away. And right enough, I went back for the results of those scans and they said, look, your, your tumors come back. And the surgeon at that point said, I'm, I'm not good enough to do this surgery. I'll have a go, 
but there's a high chance you'll be paralyzed on the neck down and on a ventilator for the rest of your life, but I'll have a go. So that's extremely worrying. So at that point I stepped back, I guess in the past, I'd always maybe, there's not a course in this, right? You don't do cancer 101 at school. You don't do neurosurgery at school. So you don't, you know, we're, we're not almost programmed to deal with this stuff and it's very emotional and it's a, you're in a really vulnerable position and you, you're trying to make the best decisions, but you, it wasn't really in your plan. I just wanted to be a sports person and an athlete and all of a sudden I'm having to deal with this parallel life that's, that's happening over here and I just want to be over here. And I would hide in sport. I'd go and ride my bike and I'd go and do things so I didn't have to deal with it over here. But the reality was that... I, I, there was times I, I had to give this time. I had to sit down. So thankfully, I, I found a good surgeon. I didn't go with the surgeon who said that he would maybe do it or maybe not be able to do it. I found a good surgeon. I ended up having another two surgeries. So before those two surgeries, I cycled 740 kilometers from Geneva to Monaco in seven days with a tumor that, that was crushing my whole spinal wow. cord with, with just one leg. And that was my two goals. I'd raced for Great Britain and I'd done the Alps from the Spinal Hospital. So I'd achieved those two goals. And I remember cycling across the Alps and I just, there was a little voice in my head saying, you know what, just cycle over the edge. There was a big, there was a big drop. Wow. And I was like, cycle across the edge because I, I can't suffer anymore. The, the pain of being cut open and I knew what was coming. So sometimes we have a lot of anxiety around uncertainty. But I knew what was coming. I knew they were going to cut my neck open and I was going to go all the way back to ground zero again. And I was going to have to go through all the pain, the suffering, learning to walk again, learning to eat, learning to speak. And I was like, I just don't know if I've got that in me again. I don't know. It's like that boxer finishing the 12th round or the last few miles of a marathon. And I'm like, I, I just don't have it in me. So I didn't want to come back from that bike ride. Uh, but thankfully, my friends who were there convinced me. They got me to Monaco, and then I was like, "Okay, I need to get back to London and and deal with this other thing that's in my life that I didn't want to deal with." Because when we're met with trauma, the first stage is denial. Yeah. So I've I've been in denial for so many years, and then I I walked into hospital in London in Queen Square. And I said, "I'm here to check in," and the lady looked at me. She's like, "You don't look like a patient." I really. And I, turned around and I looked at everyone in the bed and I was like, yeah, I probably will in a few days from now because yeah. I just, I was in great shape. I'd just come back from the Alps and I, I've got to a place I can kind of hide the paralysis so, so it's not completely obvious at first sight that I'm paralyzed. And um, yeah, and I remember getting into all the clothes, the porter coming up, taking me down to anesthetic. And when you're getting pushed to anesthetic, there was a voice in my head that, well, maybe we, maybe we won't survive this time. Maybe this is the time that I die. And you start to see little things. You go into the anesthetic room, they're putting the tubes into you and and everything's out of your control at that point. This is great stoicism said of Epictetus, you know, you the dichotomy of control, control what you can and let go of the uncontrollables. And this is a, a point where you have to do that. And so I just did my mindful breathing and I, I guess many ways gave my body to the surgeon and two surgeries later I woke up in ICU and I, I, I it's the first time I think in 13 years of fighting this I, I thought that's it I'm, I'm kind of happy to die I couldn't open my eyes I was in so much pain and I just remember the nurse holding my hand and 
And I just remember saying to myself, it's, it's okay now to go. And then there was another voice came into my head going, now we can fight longer. Mm. And I did. And then I had, I got myself fit. I had to learn to walk again, all that process again. And that took me straight to 2019. And I went through six and a half weeks of radiotherapy every day at UCLH. And again, that was a, a huge emotional roller coaster. Uh, and, and a lot of pain. I lost, I couldn't speak. I lost my voice. I couldn't eat for almost four weeks. Every time I swallowed, it was like razor blades. I wasted away. Uh, there was, I was, it was a really tough time. And within three weeks of finishing radiotherapy, I was back on the bike. I was back cycling. And thankfully I've been clear ever since, but I've had some big scares since there's, there's been times where I thought it had come back and it metastasized and I was going to die. And, and I always sit down in journal and I think, okay, what did I learn? Mm. Every surgery? What did, what did I learn about myself? Cause we really, can I just unpick, we, can I just unpick that? So yeah, you, you talked about like things being, you know, your journey has been like 12 rounds, 13 years, 12 rounds. Can we talk about like round, like, one to three like how is like you said your mindset and everything you do changes and i think that's super important because we sometimes feel like we have to have like a set procedure of how to react to certain things but what happened in your mind when you're kind of fresh as an athlete i guess you've got more mental equity and clarity and like you're probably a bit more resilient so that first round how would you approach things comparative to your second round, you know, comparative to round three to six and then round six to nine and round nine to 12? How did things change for you, like with, with your mindset? I think so, so the early rounds, I always had a goal. That was, that was for sure. I always had a long-term goal and then I split that down into daily goals and short-term goals and, and the whole thing about goal setting. Rounds one to three, so surgery one to surgery three, I smashed myself. It was all about winning. And the philosophy was winning. Okay, what, so what do I need to do to be the best athlete, high-performance athlete? So I always got sleep right. Nutrition was always right. Training was always right. I would train, stroke, rehab five, six hours a day physically. Then I was doing all the visualization work and the imagery work, all about crossing the line first place, winning. I, was, I approached it exactly like a high-performance athlete would approach a, a, a marathon race, an Olympic final. That was the philosophy and I went hard. Everything was hard. I was doing, I remember doing 18 kilometers on the rowing machine and I couldn't even feel my body from my neck down. And my rowing coach was basically like, "Wow, if you don't finish this now, you're not making the team. Doesn't matter how long it takes. So I remember I was only a few months out of hospital and I sat on a, on a rowing machine at the British team rowing base in Caversham and I, and I rode 18 kilometers. And then after that, went home, threw up. I was a mess, but then I had to get back because sport doesn't wait for anyone. So there was a ticking clock to the London Games. And I suffered. I pushed myself way, way past the limits that anyone with a spinal cord injury and a tumor probably would have been able to do. But that's not sustainable. And it's like, a, it's like, you know, even Kipchuri, there'll be a time where his, as you age as an athlete, you're training, you have to be trained smarter. You maybe don't do the mileage you used to do. You maybe do shorter miles, but you've already got that stuff in the tank. So you might not be going out and, and, and smashing every session. You have to be a lot smarter. Your warm-ups take longer. You have to do more mobility, more stretching. 
when maybe a younger athlete you get away with a little bit so the the middle phase of of it again was about winning and there was a i i guess i still pushed hard and i still smashed it and i still trained hard and it was still again about winning i guess what i changed there is i i changed my nutrition strategy and actually i don't think that was the right thing to have done i, I went fully vegan Mm -hmm. uh, and that works for some people and reflecting now back to as, as eating meat again, I actually feel better now than what I did through that phase. So I, I guess I, I clicked on clickbait. Maybe it was a little bit of pseudoscience there. I hadn't done my full research again, works for some people. I would say possibly didn't, wasn't the greatest move I made there, but that middle phase again, it was the long-term goal, make it back onto the, the British cycling team suffer on the bike and i went through so much suffering off the bike but i could still suffer on the bike because my philosophy was the pain on the bike i'm alive the pain in hospital i'm attaching to my mortality and my death how about so I'm, how, just, just, one, just one question how about the team dynamic because you talked about being in a team what was your team like in the beginning phase in the middle phase so the, the team was always so Rowing and cycling are individual sports within a team. So I rode in a boat of four people, but it was four individuals who all had their own goals, but we came together as a team. So it's not like rugby and football where you actually collectively have to play, you, you know, so, but they were all great and they were all great. And then that went to the physios, to the surgeons, to the doctors, to the psychologists, to the nutritionists. And I, and I seen it like the link of chains in a bike. Every single person was important. So I had a, big for me every time the cleaner came into my hospital bed in the morning she was the one of the most important links in my chain okay because how she came in affected my day she was the first person i would see every morning was the cleaner yeah now if that exchange was not great then yeah. that kind of set me off in a pretty just a pretty shitty day, to be honest. Yeah. And, and you would know yourself, if you come out your front door and your first encounter of the day is not great, and then the second one not great, by the time yeah. you get you get a bit beaten down. Yeah. So she came in and I always made a point of speaking to her. We had a great discussion. It turned out she was a master's student in neuroscience and she was working as a cleaner on a neurological ward to learn more. Wow. So we had a great relationship of just helping each other. And then actually the neurosurgeon, he was not that important by this point. He had done his job. So I recognized actually now the cleaner was more important than the neurosurgeon. So I had an, I invested in that relationship. And then at each phase of the journey, different people became important and other people didn't. And I, I knew where to lean in. And I also would understand if, if somebody scored very high on neuroticism and very high on introversion, that actually that relationship's not going to be great because I need somebody who's maybe very stable and and gives me energy. So I started to really be quite, I don't want to say hard, but I, I started to really be very mindful of who was around me and how that team dynamic worked. And I, and I didn't want negative people around me. I didn't want pessimistic glass half empty, but I also didn't want the very super positive, over-optimistic people who yeah. constantly tell just be positive, yeah. just be positive. <laughs> I, I completely agree with that. I think the, 
you know, I have this saying in the running group, it's you're the sum of all your parts. And I, I try and like emphasize that actually, if we all have a certain perspective, um, and it's all right to be challenged, by the way, I just think yes. you have to be challenged, but also be aware that if you're going to challenge, there has to be a give and take. So I think challenging is good as long as you can then work towards like an amicable like be on the same hymn sheet and i guess that's my that that might have happened with you and some of the surgeons i guess when you told them like oh i'm gonna be in the olympics and then they're like well no you've got a tumor so like did that ever happen with you and then you had to kind uh, of get I'm... through them get through to, to them and, and get them to understand that this is something you can do yeah i think a lot with the physios when i was in the spinal cord hospital yeah they, got, they were very much like well our goal is to get you independent yeah and as I said, my goal is actually to make it back onto the british team yeah and i i've learned a lot from there as well so through i was a difficult patient in those early days because in the first part the middle part i was just human doing yeah rather than human being yeah so it's like go 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 i need to just push me harder push me harder push me harder then when i got to the latter stages i was like okay i don't have that that bike anymore yeah so i need to work a lot on what victor franco spoke about between stimulus space response there's a space between stimulus and response and that space is where we hold the power to really show up to who we want to be mm -hmm. so uh, for example when i went through surgery five and six in 2018 the physio came up and she brought a walking stick and she said, we need to get you walking. Now, old David would have got out of bed and he's like, he would have muscled through and tried to get the walking stick. He'd have probably fell and fallen over. Then the relationship with the physio would have been struggled. I knew that goal was too big a goal for me. But I was like, how do I emotionally intelligently engage in a conversation with the physio that I don't beat her self-efficacy and her self-esteem down? I don't want to be awkward. I don't want to tell her yeah. that I'm no limper. So I need to have this discussion with her to say, look, the goal you've set me is too far. Yeah. Now, I will push, but I need to go on a Zimmer frame to start with yeah. so that I get my confidence that I'm okay on my feet because I've been here already and I know what's coming. I know what, I've been through this so many times. Mm. It's a really delicate conversation and she was only a young student by the end of it, she was like, okay. She went and got the Zimmer frame. We did the Zimmer frame. We had a great session. We high-fived at the end of it. Her self-efficacy felt great. She felt great about it. And I said, come back in three, four days with the stick, and I'll do the stick then. So what I realized is that towards the end of, of these surgeries, I've had to, I went and studied my master's in psychology. I've done diplomas in neuro neurology. I had to become a real student of my mind and my body and the world around me to then be like okay how do i strategically do things now i can't just go and smash myself anymore yeah. because i've suffered so much now off the off the sport arena i don't really have i don't want to suffer in on sport either i want to keep doing sport because I, I love it now so i don't want to compete at the top level i want to use sport now as something that's about community it's about being part of a tribe belonging having that sense of belonging, but something that's also going to push me out of my comfort zone, right? Because if we just stay in our comfort zone, we're not going to grow. I still want to grow as a human and as a person. And so can I, I still... Can I challenge you on a couple of things? Yes, please do. So being difficult can be 
a superpower. Obviously, you, you know, an endurance sport being difficult is something that's quite important. How, so now, you know, in that first, in those first two stages, you said being difficult and human doing rather than human being was what you were really attuned to. Um, would you would you not say that you, you still have some of those facets of being difficult and that still is your superpower because you got to where you've got to? Yeah, absolutely. And I think where I, I just manage, I, I learn how to manage that now through the stimulus space response. So when I'm presented with a stimulus now, where before I was just like, smash it, smash it, smash yeah. it. I learned now to be like, okay, so who am I working with? What's their personality type? What's their philosophy? What's their values? What's their goal? What's their vision? Let me, I've got two ears, one mouth. Let me listen to them. And then I'll be like, okay, here's where I think we're going. Where can we meet? And then I know there's times where I need to to kick back, be more assertive, yeah. be more, this is actually no where I'm going this direction. And then I know there's also times where I'd be like, okay, right, I'm willing to, to not not be so pushy but i also this is also an internal battle i have with myself yeah because and i know this is not this is working for me but is it really working for me because maybe i've just been through so much now that i've kind of got to this really strange place with my own death and mortality that um there's a fine balance where I think this is a good thing and I think it's not such a great thing. And there's definitely times now where I'm thinking, David, this is this is not working for you. You still have to be the guy who did round one to round five. Yeah. Because that's actually who you are and it's a big part of what's kept you alive. That's what that's that's the thing that I would argue because I think life comes at you and you're not gonna really find space when life goes, all right, you know what? It's not your day today, but I'm gonna just I'm gonna take a step back and I'm gonna let you have a little bit of a breathing space and then I'll come back. Um, yeah. I just really feel from my childhood, my exposure to sport, my thought processes on certain things that have happened to myself and um, being a black man, some of the minority pieces and things that do happen to um, people within the black community. Yeah we have to be aware that it's not going to always seem um, consistent. There's not always going to be a point where you are seeing trends in life. Um, and if you want to sit back and allow things to happen, they will happen in their own accord and life can give you sunshine and roses or it can give you difficult times and, and storm clouds. And I guess my thing is, in in both of those times um and in that space between that stimulus and response i guess always being aware that you need to be a difficult person as well and find what you need from that period of time um i think you really pulled on some pieces when you were talking about when when i was listening to you at the battle cancer event you talked about the times when you were lying in your bed especially in the first two rounds i think you talked about the first two stages you were kind of just really you're really kind of determined you and and i just want to i just want people to be aware of how you were and what your mindset was in those first two phases because i think we can use that especially when we approach running um because you will have a difficult road 
and having the mindset to know that it's going to be difficult but not also just bludgeoning yourself I guess so it's like having the tools from stage one and two but also having the hindsight and being okay with being good to yourself from stage three does that make yeah. sense yeah and I think what I think what I've done is I, and I'm learning right we're always learning so I'm trying to learn how I put all this together and I'm like okay how can I take the real drive, that guy who was super assertive, super winning on stage one, one, two, three, and then the learnings in the middle race, and then also all the learnings towards the end round, how do I bring that all together and, and use it all? And I know right away, okay, I know I need good sleep. That's the part of it. I need, I need to be super, super, st- and there's areas of my life where I'm really, there's non-negotiable. Sleep's the first one. So then I started to struggle mentally. So I was like, okay, why am I struggling mentally? So I thought, right, what's David's top four values? And could he put them out in duress? So someone had to put a gun to my head and say, right, if you can't tell me your top, what you value, your top four things in life, I'll, I'll pull the trigger. So right away, health is my first one. I value my health. Then I value being in nature. Then I value exercise and movement. Then I value people. And my fifth one is making a difference. And then six is a love of learning. So I, I know that they're like my non-negotiables. I need to have them stimulate every single day. So like today, I've been out for a two and a half hour bike ride. I'm going out to do some discus throwing later on tonight. Yesterday, I was in the gym. I'm taking all that stuff from David from surgery one, two, and three. Then towards the end of the stuff, I'm bringing in all the philosophy and the philosophical stuff that I've read from Stoicism. But at the end of the day, when I was in Jamaica last year, a guy said to me, David, you can either be the deer or the lion. Wow. <laughs> and we were downtown Kingston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, feel, I'm feeling that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And he's like, you're a lion. You're not the deer. You wouldn't have made it out of surgery one if you'd been the deer. And what was interesting, when I was in downtown Kingston, I did, I felt like this rush coming back to me. And, and I... And I in London, six weeks ago, I had the, the big cancer scare. I'd spent all day on oncology. I'd seen people die. And then that takes a lot out of you when you when it's constant all the time, young people, old people, kids. Mm. It, it, and I'd come home from that. And I, I had a confrontational situation in London that night. Yeah. And David, who showed up, was David from first number surgery, number one. Like I, and I spent, I used to work, I worked on the doors for six years. I fought for Great Britain. I fought for Great Britain in three world championships in Japan, Russia, South Africa, and Karai. So I, I know how to handle myself. And of latter, I've been quite, I would say quite very passive, very calm, yeah, relaxed. And all of a sudden this came to the top because mm. My family were threatened. I was threatened. And the person who showed up was the line. Mm. And I felt really bad for it. And then I spoke to a friend of mine in the military and he, and he said, no, David, he said, that had to come out. That's, yeah. that's the heart. That's the, that's the, that's the thing that's kept you alive. Every time you've been cut open, every time you've been diagnosed, every time you've had to learn to walk again, it's that inner belief, that inner drive, that inner hunger. So I guess that's what resilience is. Is it nurture or nature? I think it's a combination of both. Here's my um, here's my here's my here's my two pence, and yeah. um, I just want you to just tell me what you think, and and I think also I'm just going to pull on what you were thinking when you were lying in bed the first time you were paralysed, because you have to. I believe that sometimes you have to be pushed, and you have to be in a position where there's no other 
option but for you to evolve and yes. I think you were lying in bed the first time and you said you were just sitting there and you and I don't know if you remember or recall what you were saying to yourself or what you felt at that time yeah I remember I remember every time every time I remember on the, so the first two surgeries I was always like I will make it back yeah I, 100% yeah. I, it starts with your if you don't believe in yourself then no, no one will right so I, I knew I was going to make it back Surgery number three, which completely paralyzed me. Even at that point, I still was convinced I was making it back. Yeah, I, I was the I was the first patient up every morning. I was the first patient. I was it's, it's discipline. Yeah, it's discipline. If you're not disciplined, then the greatest willpower in the world is not going to work. So, yeah. I I had everything. I was like, I will be first to the shower. I every night before bed, I was on my once I could get on my Zimmer frame and stuff. I always pushed. Okay, and now I, now what happened at the end then? So did you did you just were you were more lo- you were more caring to yourself, more loving to yourself? So I I still pushed. Again, I got when I got out of surgery number six and got home, my my dad put a bike at the end of my bed, and I was like, I'll, I'll get on that bike. That was my goal, and then I was back. You know, since since that surgery number six, I've cycled 160 kilometer rides. I've swam an Ironman. I've uh, done all sorts of craziness that's incredible that's just so, mad I, I, I taught myself to swim with one arm and i and i swam an iron man i got out of the pool and i cycled 160 kilometers so i knew i could do the iron man i just couldn't do the run because i can't can't walk really but i wanted to know tell myself i could do it last summer i went to the alps i cycled out to airs i did all the climbs so that's still the guy from surgery one i think what's really changed manny is that I am just now very aware of my mortality and I know I'm going to die. And I did a memento mori, which is a meditation of your death. And I thought, well, I'm 45 now. If I live to 85, that's 2000 odd weeks, 480 months, 360,000 hours. That doesn't stop. The only thing I can't buy is time. Mm. What, what it's done where I say that I've changed, I think I've just become super super aware of dead time and a lifetime yeah and that i those values that i listed off i need to be doing them all the time yeah and i'm very very disciplined and very strict if if i'm not doing them everything else is dead time yeah and i need to know that i need to create an environment around me that i can nourish that all the time so it's i think What's really, really changed when we when when you push me on these questions and we delve into it is that I just become more aware that I'm going to die and how am I spending my time? And I say to my friend the other day, I, I drove because I drove up to Scotland, so I'm in the Highlands right now. And I stopped at a friend's house. And in the Highlands you can do this. I just walked in. And he was like, he's not seen me in like a long time. And he's like, What what, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And I said, and I told him, I said, Look, I said, I'll be honest with you. I said I didn't think I was ever going to see you again. I thought I was going to die six weeks ago. Yeah. And if I didn't make the effort to knock on your door and come in now, I might only see you twice more before I die. Yeah. So, and he was like, get the whiskey out, get the tea out. Nice. (laughs) And I was there for five hours. Yeah. And I realized that I was like, wow, okay. I don't, I've still got that fight. I'm still going to show up. I'm still the light. I'm still going to smash it. I'm still going to have those difficult conversations. I'm going to go out in the rain and push myself. I've got some big challenges that I want to do on the bike yet. I'm still going to do that stuff. 
But I think where I am now, there's moments of deep, deep reflection where I sit. And even just now, I got a letter from the hospital. Before we came on the call, I got a message from the hospital about my next MRI scan. And I'm like, okay, am I living fully aligned with my values? Are my goals aligned with my values? I don't want to be on someone else's path. And I need to be on my, my own path. And I need to be disciplined to get up, get going, which starts with good sleep and having all, have all my goals written down. And I have to, I'm constantly saying to myself, I'm paralyzed from the neck down. I skied this year. I taught myself to ski again. I, today again, I rode on my gravel bike. I'll jump in the loch, do a 4,000 meter swim. I'm always pushing, always pushing. But at the same time, I'm always very compassionate with myself. I try not to judge myself. If I wake up and I don't feel so great, I'm like, okay, that's okay. Like, like what can we do to, to, to feel better? And some days it might just be having, having a, a coffee or meeting up with some friends and having a chat. So where if I missed a training session on surgery one to four, I would have beat myself up. Yeah. Now I'm a little bit more relaxed because I'm not trying to win a world title. So now my relationship with sport is more about making the start line and enjoying it. Where in the early days, it was about crossing the finish line first. So I was very much, I was only training the athlete, not the human. Where now I think I address the human a little bit more than the athlete, but the same principles of that pushing are, are, are very much still there. Wow, that's amazing. And um, I think I'm going to end with this last question. Um, anybody listening listening to this, um, if they're in a difficult situation, they're finding that things are challenging and um, there were three things that you would tell them to do, what three things would they be? Um, I want this this to hopefully give, uh, these to, these to be takeaway pieces so that people can start to implement them in their lives moving on from now so i'll be completely honest um i was in a bad place two weeks ago that's why i'm back in Aviemore. i was in london uh alone never leaving the house sitting looking at a wall going only from oncology appointments back to my home to oncology appointments back to home and i was in a really bad place. Mm. And I had the self-awareness to know I was in a bad place. And I was like, how do I get in a good place? And someone said, well, go to a psychologist. I was like, that's not going to work because I know what they're going to tell me. They're going to tell me I need to leave London because I knew it was environment. The environment was a big part, but I know that that's obviously not for everybody. We're all individuals. Mm. And I think first of all, I was recognizing that Emotion, thoughts, feelings, and emotions and beliefs are not fact. So we're all, I, I can't tell you not to think about pink elephant because you'll think about the pink elephant. And I think there's science that shows you'll think about it 30 times in a minute if I tell you not to think about it. And this was a big thing in, in the cancer stuff. People always tell me, just be positive. And that's telling me that it's, so it's not okay to think negative because I can't not think negative. So a mentor of mine, Trevor Mohad, who, who unfortunately passed away now, he said to me, don't say stupid shit out loud. He said, I can't tell you not to think it because you will think it. Just don't say it out, out loud. Because if you say it out loud, it's like 10x more powerful. So I always try to be very mindful. There's not much you can say in a situation to make it better if it's already bad. But there's a, 
oh, you can say a whole lot of things that's going to make it a whole lot worse, right? So, so it, it starts with self-awareness. So that's my first thing is like become self-aware, self-aware of your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, because they become your behaviors and your actions and then they become who you are. So being very self-aware, sitting down, it might be journaling, it might be mindfulness, meditation, but just working on that stimulus space response, sitting with yourself, being able to become aware of how, what situations are making you feel a certain way and why are they making you feel that certain way? And do you need to change the situation? Do you need to change your work environment? It might be, you might have to do something quite drastic, which is very, very scary. But remember, we are only here once. We're only alive once we owe it to ourselves. And it might be a very difficult decision you have to make, but all of a sudden you feel free. You're like, oh, I feel, you may even leave in a relationship and all of a sudden you're like, after the grieving process, wow, I feel so free. I should have made that decision years ago. You might be in a job that's fulfilling external goals, but it's not nourishing the internal who you are. So how do you even know who you are? Again, you have to start with the self-awareness. So it's doing the work. So become very self-aware start to sit with those thoughts, feelings, and emotions, but recognize that they are only thoughts, feelings, and emotions. You might have to reframe them. Then know your values. Do the work. Know what you value. What's the most important four things that you value in life? And are you living according to those values? Because if you're not, then you're, you're going to struggle. And again, this is a big problem in the dating world. Now, if we spin up a little bit, if you match purely on an app based on attraction, you might not have the same values. And after the honeymoon phase, you both wake up and think, this is horrible. And you bicker and argue all sorts for ages. So being clear on who you are, what you value, and trying to create a world around you that you can nourish those values. So, and, and are, you getting, are you getting those values daily? So if you really value nature, and stillness and calm and serenity and you're living in central London how are you getting that how are you nurturing that value that you value are you getting to Richmond Park Hyde Park Barson to do those runs are you getting out if you value social connections so being very clear on your value system and they're 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 the first two things that I would that we would hammer down and then the third one is um is, is sleep that's that I feel you know and I know that might sound a little bit strange that's so simple but I had a an intention I set this year and it's been a complete game changer I said natural light before artificial light no technology in the bedroom no phone the first thing if you're waking up right now and the first thing you're doing is looking at your phone you're putting your body into a sympathetic state you're getting spikes in cortisol you're visual system is zooming in, you're getting stressed, you're getting other people stressed, you're going straight to social comparison. If you're going straight to social media, right away, your subconscious brain is, oh, I don't look like that, or I'm not enough, or, or, or you know, all that stuff. There's a whole host of stuff going on. Wake up tomorrow, before you even turn your phone on, step outside, spend even just five minutes stretching, and then you can turn your phone on. That is the only thing I really try to be disciplined about in my life because if you try to do too much you won't stick at it just that one thing has a whole host of other stuff because it sets your circadian rhythm so you get a better sleep that night you're more likely to make better choices with your food your mental fitness is going to be better you're more likely to go for the run rather than sitting on the tv and the sofa just everything 
in my life has changed dramatically in the last few weeks by saying to myself, David, be disciplined to not look at your phone before looking at natural light. And my screen time has gone down like 60%. Amazing. David, it's been a pleasure. Um, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for giving so much insight. Um, you know, wishing you good health, continued good health and um, keep, yeah, keep training. It's going to be a lovely summer for you, hopefully, getting out on the bike. Um, and I hope everybody has enjoyed this um, this podcast because it's one that's been bubbling for a long time and um, I don't think it's disappointed. So this has been the Running Lifestyle Culture Podcast. I have been Manny Avola. Thank you so much, David Smith, for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And I wish you all a blessed year and, and keep moving those bodies. <laughs>